from the moment God breathed life into humankind right up to today, he's been speaking to his people. Through the patriarchs, through the prophets, Jesus himself, the apostles after that, and then of course through his holy word and the Holy Spirit, God is always speaking. In fact, uh, if you read the biblical account of creation in Genesis 1, you'll notice that each day of the creation story begins with, and God said. And then, of course, on the sixth day, then God said, which is followed by a response from whatever he was creating on that given day. It's a pattern, actually, throughout uh, the creation story and indeed throughout the entirety of the Bible. God speaks and then his creation responds. And yet when it comes to humankind, there's something drastically different about that pattern because apart from the angels, only humans are able to respond in a way that is contrary to what God is speaking. So, uh, for instance, your dog can disobey you, but he cannot disobey God because animals don't sin. All right? Uh, so not to be crude, but for instance, if a male dog fools around with the female dogs in the neighborhood, he may be disobeying you, but he's not disobeying God because the moral laws of God do not apply to animals, right? Jesus, Jesus didn't die for your dog. He died for you. When your cat kills a bird in your backyard, your cat isn't guilty of murder because God's moral laws don't apply to your cat. That's why the rest of creation does not require a means of forgiveness from sin, because when God speaks, creation responds by doing whatever he tells it to do until you get to mankind. Then all bets are off because we've been given free will and we've used that free will to respond in a way that is contrary to the will of God. And as a result, all of creation is now suffering the consequences under the curse of sin but not because of the sin of the plants or the animals, right? It's because of the sin of mankind. Because when God speaks, we don't always uh, respond like we should. In fact, that is the essence of sin, an improper response to the voice of God. And so the Spirit of God is continually speaking, calling us back to Christ. And when we respond favorably to that call through faith and repentance... He saves and redeems us by his grace through our faith made possible, of course, only by Jesus' sacrificial death on a cross. But listen, accepting all of that, which I know probably most of you have, you need to understand that's not the end of your story. That's actually the beginning of your story. You see, you're not born again so that you can remain a baby forever. No, you're born again so that you can start living a whole new life. A whole new life where for the first time since you were created, you actually have the ability to respond favorably to the voice of God. Yet this is the part that seems to be lost on so many of us Christians today. We experience new birth in Christ and then we treat that experience as if we've reached our spiritual destination rather than embarking on a whole new journey, a whole new life that has just begun. And as a result, we remain in this perpetual state of spiritual infancy. And all the while, God is still speaking, waiting on us to respond to him. In fact, I believe often when we think we're waiting on God for something, 
He's actually waiting on us to respond to something else he's already spoken to us about. And so at times when we think God is silent, he's not silent at all. In fact, he's always speaking. We're just not always listening. Okay, sometimes the reason it seems like God isn't moving in your life is because he's waiting on you to respond to what he's already told you to do. And I can tell you, I can tell you that from firsthand experience. I, I knew from the time I was a young boy that God was calling me into full-time church ministry. I didn't know it would be as a pastor at that point, but I knew I was called to minister in the church full-time. And yet for a very long time, I chose a different path. And then I wondered why God didn't seem to be moving in my life the way I wanted him to or thought that he would. And so the whole time I was waiting on God to do something in my life and he was actually waiting on me to do what he'd already called me to do. Yet the moment we finally begin responding to that call, the moment my wife and I finally began to respond to that call, even though we didn't have everything we needed to fulfill that calling, you understand, we weren't ready in our minds. But he provided what we needed as we needed it, which has been the case ever since, even though I'll tell you, I would feel much better if he would just give me everything I need up front, right? And I think this is where a whole lot of believers are living today. We want God to move on our behalf before we respond to his voice. But that's not how it works, as we'll see in our story today as we continue working our way through the gospel according to Mark, when God speaks, we have to respond even when we don't have everything we need to carry out that response. But you see, that's how we grow up in Christ. That's how we mature from spiritual infants to spiritual giants by faithfully responding to the voice of God when he speaks and then trusting him to move on our behalf often as we go. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples about the end of this age, which I personally believe we're living in right now, he said, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you, in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit, Mark 13, 9 through 11. In other words, Jesus said, do what I've called you to do, and I'll move on your behalf. But just so that we're clear, sometimes the provision that you will need to carry out that calling won't come until the very hour that you need it. At one point when Jesus sent them out to continue to minister to others, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not even to put on two tunics, Mark 6, 8, 9. And yet later Luke tells us in chapter 22 of his gospel account that they lacked nothing that entire journey. Everything they needed was provided for them as they responded to the voice of God, but not before. He didn't give them everything they needed to respond to him first. No, first he just spoke, and then he provided as they responded. You understand, living that way requires a measure of spiritual maturity, and yet he expects nothing less of us. Because when God speaks, we are meant to respond, not just when it's convenient or expedient or safe for us to do so, which is, which is how we grow up 
in Christ, being doers of the word and not hearers only, right? That's what James, the brother of Jesus, says in James 1.22. Uh, so look, an infant is extremely limited in her ability to respond to her parents' voice, right? And yet she requires constant provision. And that's sort of what it's like when we fail to mature in Christ as Christians. We want to be constantly fed. We want to be constantly nurtured. We want to be constantly provided for while at the same time being extremely limited in how we actually respond to God's voice in our lives. And honestly, I think the church in the modern age in many ways has become a spiritual maternity ward where the level of care and development in some cases rarely ever exceeds spiritual infancy because we come expecting to be fed. We come expecting to be nurtured. We come expecting to be provided for far more than I think we come expecting to respond to something he says to us while we're here, while we're together, while we're in his presence. I mean, I know sometimes we respond when something in particular in a message or in a prayer time or a worship time touches you, right? But do you come? Every time, do you come with an expectation that you're going to respond to God every single time you gather with his people knowing that he is always speaking, which means we should always be responding? Every time God speaks, whether that's through the, the preaching and teaching of his word or through worship or through prayer or through needs that are expressed here or through others, every time we gather, we should always be responding to his voice every time he speaks to us. Because if we only come expecting to receive, but not expecting to respond, what you end up with are churches full of Christians who never grow up in Christ. Their spiritual growth remains stunted because when you fail to respond to the voice of God in your life, when you only receive and receive and receive, you will fail to mature in Him. And yet all the while, Christ is still speaking. He's still calling us to so much more. Actually, He's calling us to a whole new life, to leave behind spiritual infancy, to grow up in Him. But that means learning how to respond when God speaks, as we'll see. So let's pick up the story uh, where we left off then last time at Mark chapter 3. And we're going to begin by reading the first six verses. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So Jesus, after preaching in the synagogues and preaching at Peter's house and preaching in the surrounding areas, he goes back to the synagogue to continue preaching the word of God because as he said plainly in chapter 1, verse 38, that is why he came, to preach the word of God. And of all the places you would expect his message to be received and responded to with enthusiasm, surely it would be the synagogue. 
because these were the church people of Judaism, the people who had spent their entire lives going to the house of God, learning the scriptures, offering prayers, giving alms, observing the religious law, doing everything that good church people are supposed to do. And yet with all of their learning and all of their religious devotion and all of their pious behavior, they'd become completely lost in their ability to recognize or respond to the voice of God. And so when Jesus the son of the living God, instead of responding to his voice, when he's right there with them, they fall silent. Is this man with a withered hand? Maybe it was a paralyzed hand or a, a deformed hand, maybe both. He's there among the crowd and immediately the Pharisees are sizing Jesus up to see if he's going to heal the man on the Sabbath, which in their minds meant that he was breaking the Sabbath. And according to the Mosaic law in Exodus 31, 14 and 15, in Exodus 35, 2, in Numbers 15, 32 through 36, breaking the Sabbath was punishable by death. However, the, the problem with the Pharisees' judgment of Jesus' work on the Sabbath was that they were trying to judge him based on their own rules. Not actually on God's law. The fact is, as we discussed two weeks ago, the Pharisees had been adding their own rules to God's law for centuries until their rules kept them from actually recognizing the one who gave them the law to begin with. According to their Sabbath traditions, if you cut your finger, you could stop the bleeding on the Sabbath, but you could not put ointment on the cut. You could stop it from getting worse, but you weren't allowed to make it better. You could help someone in need, but only if they were in imminent and mortal danger on the Sabbath. You could tie a knot on the Sabbath, but only if it was a knot that could be untied with one hand. I'd love to meet the guy who wrote that one. I, listen, they were so focused on their rules. They couldn't hear God even when he was speaking directly to them, as William Willimon put it. The clash with authority is not over the rules, but over who rules. The truth is, the Pharisaical rules that were added to the Mosaic law became so cumbersome that even some of their own leaders eventually recognized the absurdity of trying to keep them all in ancient uh, rabbinic literature, there is a written collection of Jewish oral traditions called the Mishnah, which is it's actually one of the two major components of the Talmud, the Talmud being the central text of rabbinic Judaism and actually the primary source of Jewish uh, religious law and theology. And in the Mishnah, which is essentially, uh, it's a compilation of rabbinic opinions and even debates about the law, it says, and I quote, the rules about the Sabbath Festal offerings and sacrilege are as mountains hanging by a hair, for Scripture is scanty and the rules many. In other words, our own rules about the Sabbath are absurdly burdensome and not clearly supported in the Scriptures themselves. And yet these Pharisees were using their religion as a weapon to try and silence Jesus. Blaise Pascal said, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. It explains their alliance with their political enemies. The Herodians was a Jewish group who supported the, the dynasty of Herod the Great and his sons. And the irony of it was the fact that the Pharisees were plotting to kill Jesus on the Sabbath for offering physical and spiritual life to others on the Sabbath. 
And it grieved Jesus deeply. In fact, the Greek word that Mark uses to describe Jesus as angry in verse 5 doesn't simply uh, refer to him being annoyed. It means actually violent passion or fury. Because instead of responding to the voice of God that was offering them life by their own free will, they were choosing death. And that unwillingness, that hardness of their hearts that refused life, that refused to respond to his offer of eternal salvation, it grieved Jesus deeply. And of course, uh, the focus on this part of the story is on the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. But listen, uh, we would be terribly remiss to overlook the profound lesson that the man with the withered hand is actually teaching us about responding to the voice of God because the Pharisees came into this meeting completely uninterested with what Jesus had to say before he even began to speak. And then once he did speak, asking them a direct question, they were silent. They refused to respond. And yet here is this man with a hand that doesn't work. And remember, at this moment, between the Pharisees and Jesus, you could cut the tension in the room with a knife. And here's Jesus calling this bystander with a lame hand to come up front and center to get into the middle of this situation. Now, at this point, everybody in the building, including the man with the withered hand, knew just because of the history already in Capernaum and the surrounding areas of what Jesus had been doing, everyone knew that Jesus could have easily healed this man after the meeting was over. He could have easily waited until he dismissed the crowd after the tensions with the Pharisees had subsided, maybe outside later when no one was watching. But Jesus calls the man forward, front and center, in the heat of the moment, and the man responds by coming to Jesus. In fact, he was the only person in the room at that point responding to the voice of God. And then Jesus says something to him, very peculiar. He tells the man to do something he cannot do. He tells the man to stretch out his hand. Now you understand, Jesus hasn't healed him yet. He didn't touch the man's hand and heal it and then tell him to stretch it out. No, he says, stretch out your hand. Yeah, that's right. That one, the one you're completely unable to stretch out because it doesn't work. I'm telling you to do something that you cannot do without healing. And by the way, yeah, I'm telling you to do it before I heal you. We have to get this. We have to get this because it will change your life. You understand, if you wait until God provides everything that you need to answer his call on your life before you respond to that call, then you will never answer the call of God on your life. It is imperative that we get this. When God speaks, we must respond out of obedience, not abundance. You see, what, what we want to do our natural tendency is to respond to God out of our abundance, out of our provision, out of what we already have, which is why most Christians go through life accomplishing only a fraction of what they're capable of accomplishing for God because they respond out of their abundance instead of their obedience. But when God speaks, we're meant to respond whether we have the means to respond or not. Jesus provided the healing the man needed to stretch out his hand as he was stretching out his hand, not before. And yet some of you, 
Some of you are waiting to do what God has called you to do. You haven't responded yet because you don't have everything you need to pursue that calling as if somehow it is up to you to equip yourself with everything you need before you can respond to God. You've probably heard this before, the fact that God won't call you to something that he won't equip you for, which is absolutely true. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says, May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, may that God equip you with everything good. Why? That you may do his will. In other words, he knows that there is zero chance of you actually doing what he's called you to do without equipping you to do it. He knows that. So why is he calling me then to do something when I don't have what I need to carry out that calling? Well, because part of what you need to carry out your calling is spiritual maturity. And the only way you're going to mature in Christ is by trusting him to provide for you everything that you need, even when it doesn't come until the very hour that you need it. So look, if God has called you to something now, you have to start doing it, even if you don't have everything you need to see it through. If God has called you to give something now, you need to start giving it, even if you don't have all that you need to be able to give everything he's called you to give. If God has called you to pursue something now, you have to start pursuing it even if you can't see where it's leading you. You see, whatever it is he's called you to, he will equip you along the way as needed. That's his job. Your job is to get moving by answering that call even when you don't have everything that you need to begin with. By the way, uh, if that makes you uncomfortable then join the club because God has called me to do more things in my young life that I wasn't fully prepared for than we have time to talk about today. And listen, I don't think it ever gets easier, at least not for me. But you see, that's all a part of growing up in Christ. Otherwise, our growth is stunted and we remain spiritual infants, always being fed, always being nurtured, always being provided for, but never quite fully responding to God when he speaks because we never allow ourselves to experience the often breathtaking, sometimes, yeah, terrifying, but always life-changing decision to trust God for us as we respond to his call on our lives, even when we have absolutely no idea where the provision for that calling will come from. Listen, you, uh, you can say what you want about the Apostle Peter. I know he messed up a lot. Many times he said the wrong thing, even denied knowing Jesus when it mattered the most. But when those disciples were cowering in the hull of a boat during a life-threatening storm, there was only one of them who trusted Jesus enough to get up and get moving when the master called. Even though he had no idea how he would be able to make it to Jesus, he got out of that boat and started walking on the water. Was it pretty? No. Was it perfect? No. 
Were there some close calls along the way? You better believe there was. But Peter knew that if Jesus was calling him, then Jesus would make a way for him to get there, and he did. And he will do the very same thing for you. But you got to get out of the boat. You're going to have to trust God when he speaks, even when you don't have everything you need to get there. Which brings us to the next part of our story. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Those are all the areas, by the way, that were originally occupied by the 12 tribes of, of Israel uh, in the conquest of Canaan. Uh, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, verse 9, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. You'll remember from two weeks ago, these are the spirits trying to actually gain authority over Jesus. And if you weren't here, go back and listen to that, the message before this one and it'll explain all of that verse 12 and he strictly ordered them not to make him known and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons he appointed the 12 Simon to whom he gave the name Peter James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. If you, if you uh, wonder what that's about, if you read, I think it's in Luke, the story where Jesus and the disciples are traveling through Samaria, and the villagers won't let them stay. And these two guys said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? These dudes were ready to fight all the time. No wonder he gave them that name, right? And then verse 18, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So Jesus' ministry has now grown to the point that he can't even get into the cities to preach anymore, which started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 45. And in fact, the ministry is so large at this point, he can no longer minister to everyone who's coming to him. So we, that was back in chapter 2, verse 2, when we saw that happening, where everyone who's coming to him outside of the city by the Sea of Galilee now, just because of the sheer immensity of the crowds that are showing up from the entire region, there are too many people for Jesus to be able to minister to all of them. It's even got to the point where uh, he's concerned for his own life. So he tells his disciples to get a boat ready, get a boat on standby for him to jump into if needed so he doesn't get physically crushed by the crowds. Can you imagine the scene? And yet as crazy as this scene must have been, Jesus has compassion on the people and ministers to as many of them as he can, healing them and casting out the demons until it becomes virtually impossible to continue. So Jesus is looking out over this crowd, realizing there's only so much he can do at this moment. Yet what he does next should speak volumes to us when it comes to doing what God has called us to do because Jesus hikes up a mountain specifically to call other people to come alongside him to help him in the ministry because he can't do it by himself anymore. Now, just take a second to think about that. 
If there was ever a person on this planet who had the talent and skills and wisdom and ability and resources and capacity to carry out his calling, surely it was Jesus. And yet with all of that, Jesus finds it necessary to get help from others. And so listen, I'm pretty certain if it was necessary for Jesus to have help from other people in order to carry out his calling, then I'm pretty certain you are going to have to have help from other people to be able to do what God has called you to do. And so he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. That word appointed in the original ancient Greek is the word poieo, which means to create. In fact, it is the very same word that is used in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 1.1, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's the same word. So you understand Jesus didn't just randomly decide that day because things were getting a little tight to appoint these 12 men to help him in the ministry because of their talents or skills or capacity. No, he specifically created these 12 men for that very purpose. Do you understand? You have been created for a very specific purpose by God and he is ever calling you to that purpose and yet you will never be able to fulfill that purpose alone. When God speaks, we must respond by drawing near to his people, not by pulling away. Now, of course, Jesus pulled away from the crowds, but he did it to gather together his true followers. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. You see, these were the men who would become the church. Yet I can't tell you how many people I've known over the years who have used God as an excuse to leave the church. And I don't mean leaving my church to go uh, to another church. The fact is sometimes God moves his people around to accomplish his purposes. I get that. But he always, always, always does that in and through the local church. You probably heard me say it before. I think it bears repeating. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. Right From the inception of the church all the way through the New Testament, what you find is God's people carrying out their calling together. Right, Even the great apostle Paul was with other people every time he went out to minister because just like Jesus, he knew it was not something he could do alone. And if Paul couldn't carry out his calling alone and the other apostles couldn't carry out their calling alone and Jesus couldn't carry out his calling alone, I'm pretty sure you cannot carry out your calling alone. Author and pastor Kerry Newhoff wrote a a very compelling article titled, Ten Things That Ain't Church. We don't have time to read the entire article today. I actually wish we did. But you should when you can. Because he does a really great job of dispelling the myth that because we are the church, which is true, that we're somehow fulfilling our role as the church simply by doing spiritual things or good things when we're together or alone. In other words, yes, we're the church, but as the church, we have a biblical mandate to carry out our calling, and we have a biblical example of what that looks like. And so here are the 10 things. I'm just going to list them quickly. Some very good things, by the way, in our modern church culture that people often call church 
but that are not. Number one, watching church online. Number two, listening to a podcast. Number three, virtual pastors. By the way, under each one of these in the article, he explains this. If you don't understand any of them, go back and read them. Number four, that charitable thing you started. Number five, coffee with friends. Number six, this one's going to bother some people, the gathering at your house. And I'm just going to actually read a little sample of what he wrote under this one. He says, I understand that this one will be a little controversial, but most of the time that gathering in your house ain't church either. Even if you gather to pray, study scripture, fellowship, and celebrate communion, it may still not be the church. Why? Too often house church functions as a community of people who are fleeing the church, who have been hurt by the church, or who are rejecting local churches in their neighborhood. Rarely, I mean rarely, it's not like it never happens, do I see a house church really embrace the full mission of the church, which would include evangelism, baptizing new disciples, community service, giving financially beyond itself, and an outward focus that brings more people into the kingdom. If that happens, and occasionally it does, then that is church. The problem, of course, is that when you embrace all of that, it won't be long until you outgrow your living room and you start gathering in public space because you can't squeeze into a home anymore. But if it's just the eight of you, year after year after year after year, it probably ain't church. Number seven, a walk in the woods or on the beach. We laugh at these, but people tell me this all the time. Number eight, family devotions. Number nine, church surfing. And number 10, anonymity. And again, if any of these bother you, please take some time to read the entire article, and I think you'll understand where he's coming from. By the way, uh, with the exception of number 10, these can all be very, very good things in our spiritual lives. But the point is, you can leave the local church and believe that you're fulfilling God's purpose for your life by doing many good things, and you may very sincerely believe that. But in the end, you're not fooling the church. You're certainly not fooling God. The only person you're fooling is yourself. The fact is, it is absolutely ludicrous to think that we would ever be able to do what Jesus Christ has called us to do without the help of the local church. In fact, he never expected us to because it is utterly impossible. And yet there are Christians who are trying to do just that every single day of their lives without help from the church by their own wits and their own wisdom and their own strength. They try to answer the call of God on their lives, which ultimately will not only frustrate the true purposes of God in your own life by not allowing you to grow past spiritual infancy, but it also breeds disunity within his church. Which leads us to the final part of our story today. Let's read it together, verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. 
But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is talking about Satan here. Satan is the strong man who Jesus said was currently the ruler of this world. And Jesus says, I'm coming into the strong man's house and I'm going to tie him up. I'm going to bind him forever and take over. Truly, verse 28, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus goes home, but there's no let up with the crowds. In fact, if anything, they're getting bigger and bigger to the point that he and his disciples can't even sit down to eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they're saying he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. So uh, everyone has a theory about what is wrong with Jesus. The crowds don't much care about his teaching. They just want the miracles. His family thinks he's lost his mind, and the religious leaders think he's possessed by Beelzebul. Uh, By the way, not to be confused with Beelzebub. Beelzebub was considered a lesser deity. Uh, He was the one who ruled over filth and carrion and flies. It's actually, if you know the classic novel, Lord of the Flies, that's where they got its name from. But these scribes we're saying that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul, which is a reference to the pagan god Baal, who was considered in antiquity to be the lord over the entire demonic realm. In other words, it's another title for Satan himself. And so not only is everyone divided about what Jesus is doing, but the religious people are accusing him of being divided against himself. And so Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Okay, God's people, the Jews, were at best on the verge of blaspheming the Holy Spirit by openly rejecting him and his gospel, which is the unpardonable sin, the ultimate and final rejection of Christ. And I'll just mention here, uh, because people often express concern over whether or not they've possibly committed the unpardonable sin, the, the ultimate and final rejection of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are concerned that maybe you've committed the unpardonable sin, then you haven't. Because if you had, you would be utterly incapable of experiencing any sensitivity or concern whatsoever regarding Christ. Furthermore, the fact that Jesus is still preaching to these hard-hearted people in our story shows us that they had not yet crossed that threshold either. But make no mistake, they were playing with fire. It was deeply dividing them from the God they claimed to serve. So God's chosen people were a house divided against their own God. Jesus' family was a house divided against its own brother and son. And the crowds, both Jews and Gentiles, were divided against their own eternal interests, rejecting the salvation that Jesus was offering them, preferring instead only the temporary relief from their suffering that his miracles provided. And so Jesus says, look, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
In other words, the only hope that you have to be able to fulfill the purpose you were created for is to be unified in one spirit with your brothers and sisters in Christ, which is why when summoned by his earthly mother and brothers who at this point in the story thought he was crazy, he looks at his disciples sitting around him and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And so Jesus responds to their division with unity, which was a critical lesson that his disciples would need to learn in the difficult days ahead of them if they were going to be able to fulfill the purpose they were created for. And listen, it is just as critical for us to get this today because a house divided against itself will not be able to stand. All right, if you truly want to fulfill your purpose in this life, then you have to get this. When God speaks, we must respond out of unity, not division. And listen, we can, <clears throat> we can disagree about something and still be unified. Do you know that? Unity and agreement are not always the same thing. You can disagree with someone about a lot of things and still be unified with them in the spirit of Christ. I'm certain my wife and I don't agree about everything. What fun would that be anyway? Besides which, we both know she's right. Uh, we can agree on that. But you understand, when the Apostle Peter says, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4, 8, I think that can include a multitude of disagreements. Okay, the fact is, listen, I love you. You hear me? I love you. But I'm sure we don't all agree on every single thing, and yet I need you to know this. You can disagree with me about a lot of things, and I won't love you any less. Not one bit less. And as the church... We have to get this if we're going to fulfill our purpose because a house divided against itself will not be able to stand. And listen, I'm not talking, by the way, uh, about core doctrines of the gospel, okay? If we don't believe in the same gospel, then we cannot be unified in the same spirit. But when it comes to all of the, the peripheral issues and perspectives and opinions that we all have, we can disagree and still be unified in one spirit, loving each other right past those disagreements. Jesus didn't say, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you agree on everything. That's not what he said. He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How will the whole world know that you are my disciples if you have love? Love for one another. John 13, 35, the truth is, if you cannot love your brothers or sisters in Christ who you disagree with, then you cannot be trusted to fulfill the purpose you were created for. And you will remain a spiritual infant, never fully maturing in Christ until you learn to love the way that Jesus loved. It's exactly what he said in the verse before the one we just read. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you disagreements and all, you're also to love one another. John 13, 34. You see, God is always speaking, which means we should always be responding out of obedience together 
in unity. And that's obviously not always easy to do, but it's how we grow up in Christ and it's how we fulfill the purpose we were created for. The Apostle Paul said the church exists to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to what? The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. Ephesians 4, 12 through 14. So listen, what is he calling you to give? How is he calling you to serve? Where is he calling you to go? Who is he calling you to love? Maybe most importantly, when are you going to respond? Because these questions demand a response if you're going to become the person you were created to be and to live the life he created you to live because you weren't born again to remain a baby forever. No, you were born again to live a whole new life and a big part of living that life that he created you to live is learning how to respond. When God speaks, let's pray.